1: Hello, and welcome back for another episode of New Books and Pop Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks for joining me. Today, my guest is Dan Leroy. He is the author of Paul's Boutique, which was published by Continuum Press back in 2009. I had a wide-ranging and very entertaining conversation with Dan um, about his great book. One of the things I really, really enjoyed about Dan's book is that it provides a really sharp, critical look at this incredibly important album by the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique. But at the same time, this is an eminently entertaining book, as you will gather from our conversation. Um, The Beastie Boys certainly enjoyed themselves during their year-long adventure in Los Angeles as they recorded this album. So I'm going to keep my intro brief today and say thanks for listening once again and step out of the way and get to the conversation with Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. Hey, Greg, how's it going? Hey, great. Speaking to Dan Leroy, the author of Paul's Boutique, which came out on Continuum in 2009. And uh, this book, like the conversation I had previously with DX Ferris, is from this wonderful 33 and a Third series that provides a focus on a single significant album and so the author is going to go ahead and choose the record that they think is uh, worth speaking at length about for 150 or so pages and then uh and then uh put this out for the world to uh dissect and discuss and um dan i thought we could start off by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself your uh background and how you came to write this book about an album that is now considered one of the classics of uh hip-hop
0: Sure. Uh, Well, as a day gig, I'm the director of literary arts at a charter school uh, just outside Pittsburgh. I have been there for the the past seven years. So I'm basically teaching creative writing to young people. Uh, My background is primarily in journalism, Uh, worked for uh, a daily newspaper, went on to freelance for a, a bunch of publications and uh actually came to uh to write this book uh by i think the way uh, a lot of people have ended up doing it uh just kind of pitching cold and saying hey i really like this series and i would love to would love to do a book uh, about this particular record this was in the days before continuum kind of refined their uh, their pitching process so it it was pretty much me approaching uh the editor of the series david barker and uh and proposing this idea and um he invited me to make the pitch formal and i think at that time they had a, a significant uh significantly less uh people proposing than they do now where it's kind of an open cattle call for hundreds of People, but uh, the pitch uh, was
1: successful and uh, here we are. Did you uh, grow up uh, listening to the Beastie Boys album or is this something that you kind of grew to as an adult to enjoy?
0: A little bit of both. I mean, I was a a Beastie Boys fan from, I guess, way back. Uh, One reason that I I liked them initially was that, uh, at least at the time, of, uh, she's on it and then later license to ills. So many people that I knew, um, at the time really detested them. Right. And, and that was, you know, for me, uh, that was, well, uh, as a young man at the time and, uh, a bit of a contrarian, that was probably all I needed to, uh, to like them very, very much. And, and then Paul's boutique came along and then all the people, uh, who had liked them before hated them all over again, and right. I don't maybe it's the same principle um, but as far as picking the album i I think uh you know some people who write in the series uh, are very very passionate about the album. It's an album that was formative uh for them in in a lot of ways and it marked a significant period in their life and they go on to write a very introspective and personal memoir. But I I wouldn't say that about um, Paul's Boutique for me. The thing that drew me to it initially was that there was so little that I knew about it that I I really wanted to find out more. And I, I think at first... I assumed that the reason that I didn't know that much about it was that I, I just hadn't done my homework. And as I started to do the homework, I realized that it wasn't an accident, that the reason that I didn't know that much about it was that there just wasn't that much out there about it. And for an album to come out and, you know, in what amounts to the modern era with so much of it still being a mystery, that was, at least for the journalist, I mean, that was a pretty attractive Idea to try to uncover uh, some of what had
1: gone missing about it. Right. You uh, you used the word contrarian earlier to describe your um, your uh, your take on what your appeal for the beasties was, but um, you, you in the book call Paul's boutique one of the most counterintuitive records ever ever made, and maybe it was a contrarian record as well. Can you can you give us a just to start off here a quick snapshot about what Paul's boutique? was and is and explain why you think it was so counterintuitive
0: um I will uh, you know it was it was a record that was being made to follow up license to ill which uh, again was kind of a, a counterintuitive idea there were very few people I think at the time who believed that three uh white jewish kids from new york city uh we going to be able to make it what was at the time far and away the most successful hip-hop record ever right so logic dictates that if you're that lucky once that you probably ought to go back to the same well again and certainly that was what their label at the time def jam wanted them to do it wasn't what they wanted to do um And that certainly led to a very protracted legal battle, which is is detailed in the book. But they wanted to they wanted to do something completely different. They had heard uh, these productions from Matt Dyke and from Mike Simpson and John King, the the Dust Brothers, uh, who were at the time uh, pretty much three. Unknown guys uh, really didn't have the track record that they would have later on uh, from working with people like Tone Lok and Young MC. So, right. you know, to to follow up a, a number one record by saying, hey, we want to go across the country and work with these three guys that no one has ever heard of. Uh, it, it really, uh, at least as much as there's conventional wisdom in the music business, it certainly bucked all of that.
1: Right. And, and maybe before we get to, to Matt Dyke and the Dust, Bust, um, Dust Brothers in a, in a moment, um, I thought we could sort of circle back very quickly and um, have you talk about this uh, team of Simmons and Rubin that they had been working under. And as you point out, um, License to Ill was a unbelievable smash. It was number one, I think, on the Billboard pop charts, number two in the hip hop charts. And they had this this sort of dream team working with them and yet when they come off the road as you point out uh, they weren't getting paid they, they weren't getting paid and that uh, is certainly one of the,
0: the central points of contention here and and you know in in the book it kind of goes into the the two ways to look at that uh, the the one way the easy way to look at it I think is well they weren't getting paid because in the classic record company sense, uh, the record company is, is just holding out on them and he doesn't want to give them their due. The other way to look at that is that, uh, it, it's almost impossible to, uh, imagine given the success of the record, just how completely unprepared this dream team was, uh, for what happened. Uh, you know, Russell Simmons today is this international mogul. His name is on everything, and, and it's kind of synonymous with money. Right. But at the time, this is a label that was essentially being run uh, out of a dorm room at, at NYU. Uh, it's just a bunch of, of um, occurrences for which these people uh, in charge really just weren't equipped to handle and, and we're trying to play catch up. So the, the, I guess the short answer there is the money hadn't been paid. Why the money hadn't been paid yet is, is subject to some conjecture. But yeah, uh, if you're, if you're one of the three beasties, then, uh, the, the why is probably less important than the, the what in this case, which is, uh, a number one record, and you've seen a very small amount of royalties. And then uh, the head of the label wants you to go back as soon as you get off the road. Uh, It was a very exhausting tour. They went all over the country. Not only did they go all over the country, but they certainly faced uh, a lot of pushback at the time from people who were convinced that uh, these guys represented – the latest threat to Western civilization. Right. They took a lot of abuse. Uh, they came off the road, uh, and they're being told uh, immediately, look, you got to go right back in and do a follow-up. Well, that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to take some time off. That was certainly met with a lot of resistance, and, and it kind of paved the way for some of the misunderstandings that would follow.
1: Right. Well, I, w- I want to circle um, back to this later when we talk about the what I would call an unusual album cycle that um, followed Paul's Boutique's release. But yeah, your, your, uh, your point's well taken. I want to make sure people understand this as well. This is sort of a classic uh, rock and roll story, which is um, a band has a hit album, goes on the road for months which they did i think 10 or nine months they were on the road touring and yet there's no money and that's the actually the story that uh david lee roth talks about with van halen's first album uh they they tour the album is platinum they get they uh, come off the road in december after being out for nine or ten months and they're told that they owe the record company 1.2 million dollars or something like that for you know for touring expenses and so this is a a, a, not an unusual story, but yet you can understand from the artist's perspective how frustrating it would be to, to have a number one record and then have your record label say, well, there's really no money for you right now.
0: It, it is, and I think one of the things that it points up is the, the fact or a fact that I think was um, missed at the time, and that was, if you look at the background of these guys, uh, these guys were not uh struggling artists in the sense perhaps even that, that the guys in Van Halen were at the time were the the stereotypical uh band that that you were just talking about. You know, these guys came from a background uh which was relatively affluent. Right. Uh they were certainly well educated uh artistically these weren't guys, um, I think who were desperate in the sense that a lot of artists who get this big break are desperate. Uh, these were smart guys who knew what they were doing and, uh, they were willing to push the chips into the middle of the table and, and call Def Jam's bluff. Right. On right. this. Say, you know what? We, we don't need this
1: in the way that, that a lot of people in rock and roll have traditionally needed. Right. This and, opportunity. And, and so they end up on, uh, Capitol Records, which is sort of the that time, you know, one of the still well, still is, I guess, in some ways, although the industry has changed so much, um, one of the premier labels. Um can you talk a little bit about that journey from Def Jam to Capital?
0: Yeah, um it's uh it is an iconic label. It's the Beatles and the Beach right. Boys and uh, and certainly uh, at the time, if you're talking about the, the Beastie Boys, Circa, the License to Ill, certainly uh, uh, not, the, not the, uh, the matchup that a lot of people uh, would have expected. Right. But um, Capital, like uh, a lot of labels at the time, very, very early uh, in, in what we could call the development of hip-hop, uh, Capital saw a good thing. It saw a way to not only get uh, a group that was coming off a number one album and certainly was very well-known, infamous uh, might be the the better word. But, of course, uh, that's usually not a big problem in the the music industry. But it saw a chance not only to to get a group who had had success, but uh, a group who had had success in this relatively new and and uh, kind of unmapped territory of, of hip hop. So from capitalist perspective, I'm sure it's kind of a, a two for one, right. maybe a three for one. If you talk about the idea of, of bringing in a group, which kind of generated its own publicity uh, without uh, a, a lot of effort, but uh the group probably wouldn't have made it to Capitol were it not for an A and R guy named Tim Carr, right. who, uh, of all the people that I talked to for this book, certainly was uh, one of the most interesting. Was uh, a guy who certainly was well educated artistically and had his own background coming from the. uh, uh I think I would describe it as coming from the more high art uh, part of New York. And, and a lot of the uh, the thing that's interesting about the, the Beastie Boys is that they really represent for their time this kind of collision between the low art and, and high art that was going on in New York during the 80s where you had this collision of, of you know graffiti culture and hip-hop culture uh, and, you know, downtown gallery culture kind of uh, being thrown together uh, and and trying to sort itself out. So Tim Carr is a guy who came from, uh, I think it's fair to say, both of these worlds. He kind of spanned both of these worlds. It was one of the things that he kind of shared with the Beastie Boys is this knowledge of, of both low and high art. And, mm-hmm. and he had come to Capitol uh, and was running their New York uh, operation, saw an opportunity um, when this schism with Def Jam happened to sign the beasties. It was certainly a, a decision that not everyone in the company was comfortable with at the time, but Tim Carr was the guy who kind of pushed it along and, and ultimately made it happen. Uh, and then he, as his reward, he got to A and R what must have been uh, certainly one of the most difficult records to birth <laughs> that I can imagine. So right. he, you know, be careful what you wish for right. in this scenario,
1: I think. Right. And you're, you're uh I want to tell all the listeners the the excellent part of your book here is the uh one of the most excellent parts of the book is that is that you weave Tim Carr's story through there and you sort of see um, without giving up much, uh, the story away yet, but that he, uh, yeah, he uh, he sort of fights this battle for signing the Beasties, and then it it, it seems like it's going to be this uh, disaster, and then suddenly the album comes in on time and on budget, and you know there's all this hope, and then it still ends up not quite working out as he had he had hoped. So he definitely rode this roller coaster with the Beastie Boys while being their their advocate.
0: I I think the the thing that you can say. Probably best about Tim Carr something that, that he said himself, which is that you know years and years after uh, the the debacle of the the release of this album, which I, I think as a, a lot of people know didn't do what Capitol expected and and was viewed for a long time as uh, as a failure. Right. But years and years after the fact, Tim Carr, who would you know be known for signing groups like Megadeth um would eventually be known as the guy who brought brought the Beastie Boys to Capitol, who would become probably best known as the guy who helped uh bring Paul's boutique to the public. And and so he, he kind of put it that you know after years and years uh, he wasn't known as, as Tim Megadeth Car anymore. He was known as as Tim Beastie Boys Car or Tim Paul's Boutique right. Car. And so he kind of achieved maybe a, a decade or so after the release of the album this vindication, which is, I don't know, it's one of the... Uh, it, it's one of the nice things to to think about in in terms of telling this story that uh, not only did the album eventually become vindicated, but it also vindicated in a pretty personal way this guy who had so much to do with
1: the, the fact that it exists. Right, right. And um, so Tim Carr, of course, as you say, is 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 vindicated, and uh, you know he must have felt somewhat vindicated after he convinced his colleagues at Capitol to sign. The Beasties, and and then um, one thing I want to sketch out for everyone is something you know well, and I want to make sure everyone else understands as well, is that the traditional way that a record was made at that time was that, well, if you're on Capitol, you go into the record plan, or you go into Sunset Sound, or you go into, um, I don't know, Electric Ladyland in New York, and you have a big budget, and yet the Beastie Boys come to Capitol, and they say, well, I, I think we're going to record the album in this guy Matt Dyke's living room with these guys, the Dust Brothers, who – presumably people at Capitol had no idea who they were and what the beasties were thinking
0: i think that's accurate and and it's some measure of uh, of just what a hot property uh, the band was at the time you know in spite of all the the negative publicity that surrounded license to ill it's some measure of their clout that they could get away with doing what they did which as you say uh it really inverts the the whole traditional process at that time uh, you you just didn't go and say look we're going to uh, uh we're going to make this album uh in this little rundown uh hollywood apartment with a team of unknown guys and furthermore the the unspoken part of this is we're not going to use the money on this step. We're actually going to use the money, uh, in any number of other ways, uh, which have nothing to do, uh, at least directly with making records. Uh, you know, they, um, they, they not only got away with it, they, they got away with it and, and they prospered to a, a hitherto, um, undreamed of, uh, respect, so they—they, they, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's hard to to not get caught up in in that side of the story right. um, to the exclusion of of the music that was right. going on, but it's certainly a big part of the story. They 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 got this big deal, and they they completely uh, turned on its head the traditional way of making records. Now, in the end, they did. Uh, do some recording at the record plant. They did do some stuff, uh, I think, at Ocean Way and some of these bigger, more traditional studios. But, of course, even then, uh, when they went in to to do the the final recording there, uh, it wasn't without putting their own stamp on it. They went and, uh, I think as Tim Carr described it, they went and and got the big room at the record plant, which, as he said, was traditionally used for Led Zeppelin and, and symphony orchestras. And they bring in all this uh, uh,
1: equipment
0: from a, a local gaming company. They got a foosball table and a ping pong table, which you can hear on the record. And and as he put it know they, they got all this stuff in there and now I can't even bring the label down because they've got uh, all this junk. Uh, so, you know, uh, wh- when you talk about a group doing it their way, um, I'm not sure there are too many better examples than than what happened with the making of
1: Paul's right. Tea. You know, uh, one thing that's nice about doing the new books in pop music uh, podcast here um, is that I get to pick books that I enjoy um, and, and talk to authors who uh, have done a good job. And this book is super entertaining. And uh, can you just share one quick story perhaps about their uh, – they're uh, charging um, food to uh, the hotel rooms of uh, other guests. And I mean, there's so many entertaining stories in the middle of the book when they, they're they basically using the money, as you point out, that should have been used to pay for the record plan for two months on uh, on all sorts of uh, entertainments.
0: Well, uh, first of all, thank you for, for saying that because I, I – uh, you would hope that to, to tell a story like this, one of the things you could do is entertain. So I certainly appreciate those kind words. I got to tell you that my favorite story in, in, of, of all the stuff that I heard, of all the stuff that's in the book, is actually a story that I heard in two or three different versions. And I, so I don't know if the version that I'm, I'm going to recount is in fact the way that it happened, but I feel like it's one of those stories that if it didn't happen exactly this way, it, it should have. And and therefore, um, to the extent that you can take any license in creative nonfiction, I, I'm going to go on record as saying that this is a story that I, I'm going to imagine happened uh, as it was told to me by Tim Carr, which is that in the middle of making this record, uh, the the Beasties go to – I believe it was the MTV Music Awards in 1988. Uh, and they go backstage and they decide that they're going to play a joke on everybody who is backstage at the MTV Music Awards. And so they find a little room at the top of a staircase and they commandeer this room and they tell everyone that they're having a, a private party in this room. So you have all of these very well-known people, artists and A&R people and uh, record company executives who all of a sudden are going, wow, what's going on in this little room? And they have Mario Caldado, uh, Mario C., uh, whom they often like to dress up as a, a bodyguard and, and have assumed the traditional duties of a bodyguard. He's posted outside there and he will only let certain people in. So they kind of take over the backstage area and turn it into this party within a party. And then they have, uh, as the story goes, um, Mario approach Arsenio Hall, who is backstage, and ask him if he can borrow $100. So... He up and says, listen, uh, uh, Mike D. told me to ask you. I know it's kind of weird, but can I borrow a hundred bucks? So Arsenio uh, gives him this. Well, you, you got to be shitting me uh, about this uh, whole thing. But he does give him a hundred dollars. Um, and then later, uh, after Mike D. has come down from the little private party in, in this room, Arsenio. You know, comes up to him and says, "Hey, uh, what about that hundred dollars?" And Mike <laughs> says, completely deadpan, "What hundred dollars?" <laughs> it just kind of in 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 microcosm of all the 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 making of this record. I guess I should say that that story seems to be kind of a, a, a microcosmic in the sense that uh, reflects the the sense of humor at work, the fact that they just like to screw with as many people as they possibly could. If they were famous people, so much the better. Uh, And and when Tim Carr told this story, he kind of told it from the, the perspective of, wow, this is really funny, except for the fact that I'm the guy who has to deal with these guys and get this record made and turned in to capital on time so it's a funny story but also a story that you got to imagine gave him
1: uh, a certain amount of pause uh, as he witnessed it right i i thought you know one of the things that uh maybe we can touch on a little bit later down the road in the conversation is that you know i was really struck by the fact that in looking over paul's boutique's album cover and thinking about what you said earlier about um maybe in the pre-interview when we were talking about the sort of um, lack of information that was out there about it. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of the way Led Zeppelin IV was perceived by people in the seventies. There was this very um, kind of uh, impenetrable album cover and there was no names of the, of the album on the, on the sleeve. And, and yet, and you think about the, uh, about Paul's boutique in that way too, with this, all these different pieces that you've spoken about. And then of course the, the inspiration that they took, apparently, in, as you mentioned in the book, from a book by author Stephen Davis, who wrote a book called "The Hammer of the Gods" in the mid '80s, which was this tell-all book about Led Zeppelin and their exploits with groupies and and uh, you know doing all sorts of destructive things in hotel rooms. It seems like they were you know partially trying to turn art into into life when they were making this record.
0: You know that's a it's a good analogy I, something that i had never thought about uh, drawn drawing the, the parallel to, to Led zeppelin for but i think it makes sense in in the sense that the bigger reason for for doing something like that and releasing an album that is kind of so open to conjecture and comes with so little supporting information is that you want to let the art speak for itself and you you don't want to prejudice the the jury. And that was one of the big things uh, that I I guess a big part of the subtext of this album was they had done so much uh, press. They'd been oversaturated during the, the whole license to ill era and uh, not only had they been oversaturated but a lot of the press had been wow look at these three uh frat boy jerks and uh what a bunch of assholes (laughs) um you know in fairness you could say well they sort of did uh bring that on themselves and i think you you have but to go back to the Fight for your right to party video to kind of see that whole aesthetic summed up in three and a half minutes. But nevertheless, when Paul's boutique came around, they were older and wiser, and they most definitely wanted to let this thing that they had done speak for itself, and and not to do a bunch of interviews about it, not to. Um, reveal everything as we're so used to having happen when an album comes out, even right. today right. to explain the, the whole game away. And I guess in that sense, looking back on um, an album like Led Zeppelin forward, which kind of made the, the same claim for itself when it appeared uh, that the analogy makes sense. L- look, here's the stuff. Just listen
1: and, and make of it what you will. Right. Right. Um, and, and that, and thinking about making of it what you will I, one of the things I enjoy about listening to paul 's boutique is that it, it it really tests your musical knowledge with all the sampling and um, whereas it, you know there are certain samples that I know because i'm a fan of what would be considered today classic rock kind of hard rock from the 60s and 70s and so you hear that and I can I pick up on those samples while some of the other stuff the the funk stuff I'm not as quite as familiar with and um, you don't always i mean I always Catching the catching all the uh, references, but can you talk about this? What I think everyone would say in retrospect was an absolutely innovative use of sampling, and what sampling involved, and maybe um, how that all has sort of played out over the years.
0: Yeah, I think the the way that the landscape of of sampling at at this time in the late '80s. Uh, it's often described by people as still kind of a, a Wild West uh, uh, situation where it's very unclear or was very unclear at the time uh, just what sampling law uh, entailed. And that's partly because it was being made up, as, as is the case with with case law. It, you know, precedents are being set. Uh, all the time, and and uh, what emerges is kind of the, the what we know as sampling law was really being defined back then. Still, lawsuit by lawsuit, and they had had a lawsuit, uh, I believe, uh, with Jimmy Castor uh, over uh, you know the Hay Leroy sample. On license to ill. So they were involved in this from an an early stage, but it's still something that was being figured out. And I think the best measure of the confusion that existed at the time about sampling is just the very wide variety of responses that I got from people in asking questions about sampling for this book. I heard a different story from nearly everyone uh, who was involved from the uh, from the assertion that, yes, all samples were cleared to, well, some samples were cleared right. to, well, we cleared the ones that we had to clear to, well, you didn't have to clear drum samples at this time, and on and on and on. Right. I think everyone that I spoke to who had some hand in this um, had a different story to tell about it. Right. Uh, and part of the reason for the confusion is something that, that Mike Simpson of uh, the Dust Brothers, was very candid about, which is they had no idea. Uh, and to this day, unless there is a list somewhere which has been alleged, but to the best of my knowledge has never surfaced, unless there is uh, a master list of all the samples used, those guys have no idea right? Uh, what, uh, I- at least in its totality, what, what the list of samples used here was. And a lot of that reflects the way in which the, the album was made, which is, uh, hey, here's uh, here's a break that we like and we can match it with this break from this album that we like and this break and this break and this break. And at some point you kind of lose track of, of what is being sampled and it becomes less, I think, about, hey, here's – a very familiar sample, which uh, people who know it, as you mentioned, people who are familiar with classic rock from the 70s, they'll recognize this sample perhaps from uh, the eagles or from mountain or from whatever the source is. But at some point, it becomes less about spotting the sample and more about the the cumulative effect of the samples. And I think that's one of the great things about the record today is that, yeah, you can still listen, and, and certainly some people have done a fantastic job of listening to this thing God knows how many times and taking apart the uh, the samples, uh, something that there really isn't space to do in the book. Uh, but then at a whole other level, it becomes less about that and more about, well, let's Let's just listen to the effect of all this stuff together. And, um, to the extent that it, it really survives, not just as a, an example of, hey, how many of these things can you spot, and more about, well, all of these things together right. make a, a very coherent piece of music. Uh, I think that's one reason that, that it has survived and continues to be considered a classic the the thing works on its own merits apart from any prior knowledge of the source material and that's certainly a credit to the the three guys who put together most of that music and I should probably include Mario uh, C in that group as well so it's really a, a gang of four as it were but it's a testament to how well-constructed the record is that it it works at this other level. Um, And some would probably argue at a much more important level because ultimately, um, you know, I I would compare it to a a poem like The Wasteland, which Mm. in its way is, is or was the the kind of Paul's boutique of its day. It's mm-hmm. made up of all these other references, and certainly you can have a deeper appreciation of it if you are able to follow all these other references, but there are certainly people who have been able to take the poem, you know, at face value and without spotting all the, the numerous uh, sources of its source material, and they can still appreciate it uh as a whole so long winded uh, response to to that question, but I think it's one of the things that makes it such a, a special album
1: hey you're 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 talking to a guy here who uh gets paid to talk to students for uh hour and forty minute blocks so you know i'm I'm perfectly comfortable with long winded in the podcast <laughs> format is is perfectly suited to long winded responses and that was that was fine I was going to say too um in in uh based on what you just said, and uh, in terms of the pieces all making a, a, a whole. And certainly now, looking back on um, Paul's Boutique, it's certainly considered to be a landmark. And, and you, in the book, you compare it to Sgt. Pepper. Uh, would you uh, stand by that statement today?
0: I would stand by that statement, and, and I would stand by it largely uh, on the basis that, as I best uh, remember that, that I made it in the book, which is, uh, it's certainly pepper like in in the overall effect to the extent that you could call it you know psychedelic or kaleidoscopic, but I think it works best if if you make the analogy on the basis of recording technology and how just as the Beatles and George Martin took everything they could possibly take out of uh you know, four-track technology at the time of um, of Sgt. Pepper. The same thing was true with these emerging technologies, digital recording and sampling. Uh, Paul's boutique is really, uh, I think, best understood as a counterpart to Sgt. Pepper in the sense that, hey, these guys took what they had and they pushed it, as far as it could possibly go at the time. And because they pushed it as far as it could possibly go, it kind of opened up these other windows that we now kind of take for granted. Uh, But we
1: probably shouldn't take them for granted. Right. Well, I I don't think I'd be doing justice to the album uh, in following up with just what you just said unless I talked a little bit about the the chemical consumption of the Beasties and the Dust Brothers. And (laughs) one of the things I think is kind of a an evergreen topic when it comes to classic rock is the issue of uh you know do drugs aid your art or they harm your art and so I, I think of a band like aerosmith who <clears throat> will talk about how you know well eventually the drugs didn't work for us anymore and we made bad records and yet, yet with all due respect to this those guys i have to tell you that rocks is a lot better of an album than uh, some of the other albums they made when they were clean and sober. Um, And so uh, Sgt. Pepper was certainly, as you mentioned, uh, heavily dependent on the massive consumption of LSD, and uh, I I gotta tell you that it sounds like uh, the the Beasties, and for what you wrote in the book, that they uh, didn't exactly uh, abstain
0: no uh abstain is uh, a word that certainly doesn't belong anywhere uh, in in the description of of Paul's boutique on any level uh it's an interesting question it it's um and it you want to talk about an evergreen question in in terms of art i mean this is a it's a thing that goes back all the the way to you know Thomas de Quincey and confessions of an opium eater and, uh, Baudelaire and, and these guys who really, uh, were on the forefront of chemical consumption and, uh, and alcohol consumption as well and, and, and the effect that it had on their art. If I remember right, there's a quote somewhere in the book where someone says, uh, and I paraphrase that, uh, hey, do drugs help you make great art? Well, just listen to to paul's boutique right exactly you know the the people involved uh, certainly have been very upfront about
1: the the uh
0: amount of chemicals and and other foreign substances consumed during the making of the album um the the quantity uh of the uh The quantity, in terms of the uh, amount consumed, and also in terms of the number of different uh, substances uh, consumed, Um, you know, it's. um, I I think the the easy thing to do would probably be to say, and and you you kind of made the comparison a minute ago with with Aerosmith. you know, you can listen to later uh, Beastie Boys albums presumably made without the aid and comfort of, of all these different substances and say, well, you know, I liked them a lot better when uh, right. taking acid, right. smoking dope uh, all the time. Um, I think maybe the the better way to to View it though would be more in terms of the um, just the, the the team responsible because you know they they never worked with the Dust Brothers again. They never worked with Matt Dyke again except on a very limited and and, and one off basis, just a, a remix here or there. And as much as the drugs and and this is conjecture because. Um, Wasn't there, didn't see uh, everything that was consumed, and and it's a hard thing to judge in its effect on the art anyway. But uh, the thing that we can say for sure is that this dream team of of at least seven people, um, they never work together again, and, and it's really... It's something that in the book is, is mentioned that, you know, the Dust Brothers believed, you know, geez, we'll get a chance to work with them again. We'll work on the next album. That didn't happen, and you can argue that uh, maybe it was all for the best because what happened post-Paul's Boutique kind of saved the Beastie's career and has led to them, you know, in, in no small part becoming the – very iconic figures that, that they are today. But as much as the drugs, I think I would argue it's just the, the, the fact that these seven guys kind of had the freedom to create in the very unencumbered way, you know, apart from the presence of Tim Carr, who was certainly a very sympathetic uh, figure representing the record label uh i th- this confluence of events and the 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 this team of collaborators never got another shot to do this maybe they couldn't have maybe they shouldn't have but to to pin it on the drugs i think is maybe uh short changing the the larger picture which is it was just – it was a time when these guys were able to work together in a very free and open way without the interference that we would expect right. from a label. And, and they did what they did and how much the drugs uh, had to do with it. Uh, I think it would be kind of disingenuous to say that they played no ro- role at all. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, we certainly have the testimony of some of the collaborators sure. uh, who, who uh, would argue otherwise. But I think of it more in terms of these seven guys who, uh, you know, at the risk of lapsing into the, 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 cliched way that these things are described, it was uh it's kind of a magical time and, and yeah. not necessarily uh, in the sense of magical mystery tour and all the drug <laughs> use that, uh, it was just – it was seven guys in the right place at the right time able to do
1: something that had never been done before. Right. You um, you open the book with this wonderful scene of the B.C.'s on the top of the Capitol Records building, which if people have been to Hollywood, they know it's this big circular building that is that is absolutely a landmark. looks like a stack of LPs. Yeah. And that um, this uh, this opening anecdote, which sort of leads – the reader to believe that this is, you know, this is going to kick off this huge uh, campaign to promote the record. I, ha- I have to tell you reading this book it is the most bizarre album cycle of promotion, touring, et cetera, singles, et cetera, that I've ever read about from a major label album from a major act. I would have to agree with that. I think
0: it's one of the things that, um, that makes it such an interesting album that, that, uh, has something to do with, as we discussed earlier, the the fact that there is, or at least was, so little uh, supporting information about this. And it also ties into this idea that uh, these guys enjoyed a a level of freedom that is really one of the most bizarre things uh, about the making and release and promotion of this album. Uh, it, the idea that uh, that you could do something like this and, and then conclude, and essentially on your own, uh, you know what, we're, we're not going to tour this. And, and they did do a little tour, which is a very bizarre uh, side note. It's such a bizarre side note that when I was researching the book, one of the... the the things that was very high on my to-do list was find out if there actually was a Paul's Boutique tour because nobody really seemed sure whether there actually was one or, or, or wasn't. Right. Which, if you want to talk about things that we kind of think of as uh, um, are, are part of the public record, a, a tour to promote a major label release seems like the kind of thing that you could verify pretty easily was not the case in this case right uh but to go to your label and say yeah we kind of decided we really don't want to do this don't think we can tour something like this uh given the the technology and what we would have to do to make it happen uh you know it's it's received wisdom perhaps but it's Pretty sensible received wisdom that one reason the album died the death was that there really wasn't any sort of uh, concerted effort to tour behind it, and once the decision was made not to tour it or tour it in a substantial way, that's usually the end of of an album, and it certainly seems to have been the case in in this case. They wanted to make videos to promote it. They had some ideas which in hindsight you might say hey capital had let them uh go along with this they might have been able to have kept it uh, a growing concern that didn't happen and uh in any way it's like a lot of things in hindsight it might have been but it also uh it's difficult to imagine that that kind of stuff could have taken the place of touring which still tends
1: to be the best way to uh to get the word out to the provinces, so. right, right, and uh, you know maybe one other uh, reference from that era. So uh, I'm sure you know, Dan, is that A Appetite for Destruction, which has sold something like 35 million copies today, comes out in 1987, and initially the album kind of has this non impact, and yet they tour, they tour, and eventually Guns N' Roses breaks, and that was like that was the classic. Cycle that if you even if you are an unestablished band like Guns N' Roses or whether you're an established band you go out and you sell the record by playing in front of as many people as you can you you go to Texas and you go to Canada and you go to South Dakota and you, you play in some arena and you do interviews with radio stations and people play your song and people <laughs> buy the record it's just it was exactly. just bizarre it's just totally
0: bizarre. Well, uh, you know, Appetite for Destruction is a great example. So, too, is what happened with the follow-up album to Paul's Boutique, Check Your Head. Uh, by that point, Capital had figured out a, a more effective marketing strategy. They kind of went to uh, much more of a, a grassroots promotional uh, campaign, which made sense at the time because, you know, the, the Beastie Boys were coming off what amounted to a flop album. Uh, a lot of people were very skeptical at this point. Uh, and, and the grassroots approach made a lot more sense, but they did tour uh, and check your head was certainly an album that kind of built momentum slowly in the way that you describe. And part of that slow momentum uh, came from very traditional uh Parts of the the campaign, the touring, the interviewing, the you know getting out there and uh, riding the horse, right. so to speak, and uh, it's certainly that that ended up turning the the group's career around. And uh, you know, as I think Mike D describes it in the book, uh, that was their last cigarette. Uh, they were on a two album contract with Capitol. Check Your Head was The second album, um, Paul's Boutique, didn't do what it was supposed to do. Um, They put Check Your Head out there. Head uh, does something similar to Paul's Boutique. We're not having this conversation today, or if we're having it, it's certainly uh, uh, a very alternate universe kind of conversation where we're talking about this great lost album by this uh, great – Somewhat obscure uh, group from the late '80s called the Beastie Boys. Right. So the the fact that uh, that check your head was as successful as it was owes a lot to these things that uh, that they didn't do with Paul's Boutique. Right, and maybe I'm, they couldn't. Maybe they couldn't have done them. I mean, it's certainly true when you listen to Paul's Boutique and think about wow, how could how could this have been done live? Well. Um, it would have been uh, a tricky thing in the, in the shows that they did. Uh, they they used a lot of the stuff. There are still show vinyls, which are basically the, the instrumental tracks um, that were used by their DJ in, in these little club gigs that they did to promote it. So uh, that could work in a club on a much bigger scale. um at the time, it's it's a little difficult to know whether that would have gone over. Or
1: not. Right, right. So I'll give you an opportunity to uh, to be Tim Carr for a minute. And uh, if you had had your druthers, if you were Tim Carr, what would you have used as a single to promote the album?
0: Uh, I think the the song that kind of best captures uh, the album and its aesthetic and and what made it important. Uh, to the group, uh, I think, is probably Shadrach. And and Shadrach, they did make a video for it. I I guess it was a single in the sense that uh, it was kind of recognized as one of the important songs off the album. Right. Uh, But that came very, very late in the process. By that point, for all practical purposes, the, the album was a dead issue, I think. Right. Uh, you know, um, of the existing material, um, I think Shadrach probably would have made the most sense because it, uh, even though the, the core of it is, is based on this biblical reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, Benigo, the, the parallel to the beasties and the fact that they had kind of stood up for themselves and, and, you know, they were defiant. They believed in what they were doing and they weren't, uh, going to go down without a fight, even if they metaphorically were going to be put into the, the furnace. To me, that kind of, that kind of best encapsulates the, the idea of the, the whole album. Plus, uh, it's a great sample from uh, Sly and the Family Stone. A lot of it's built around that big chunk of, of the song "Loose Booty," and just in terms of its catchiness, uh, you could certainly argue that it, it's the most succinct statement musically of what they were doing. But then the other aspect of that is that you know Tim Carr, uh, as as the the book mentions. Heard all this stuff and still wasn't convinced that there was a single from among the stuff that that they had. And and he argued uh, that they needed something that even better than any of the stuff that we now know today, uh, that they needed a song that would kind of sum all this up and and become their new signature hit. Uh, They didn't go along with that. But it wasn't because there, there weren't some songs that, uh, you know, might not have, have filled that breach. And, and Matt Dyke and Mike Simpson, uh, certainly were very clear that, um, hey, we had other stuff and we, uh, we certainly considered that this was a legitimate request. So one of the, the tantalizing things about this is the fact that there are tracks somewhere uh that are still out there that that kind of are the answer to this question. What if there had actually been a uh another single or a full fledged attempt at a single from Paul's boutique? Right. Uh haven't heard all of this stuff. Presumably it still exists in one form or another, but it it uh would certainly be interesting based on the descriptions that, that I heard
1: from some of the people involved to hear what this stuff would have sounded like and if it would have made any difference. Do you, um, do you think from the perspective of the Beasties and maybe from the perspective of Capitol, um, was the album a failure? Um,
0: at the, it was a failure in the sense that they were coming off the number one album. And the expectation Fairly or Unfairly was that You know you follow up a number one Album if not with another number one Album then with an album That at least uh, Gets inside the top ten Hangs around for a while and Certainly uh, Does that by virtue of having a Song uh, That has some amount of success As a single uh, That didn't happen with Hey ladies, um, didn't happen with shake your rump. And by that point, given the things we've already talked about, the aversion to touring that, that was pretty much, it's pretty much it. Um, so a failure yeah, in the sense that there was neither a single, uh, that, that, uh, made its presence felt, um, nor was there the, the, uh, Related success of the album, uh, you know, it. I don't remember the uh, the chart positions exactly, but it certainly didn't hang around for for very long. Certainly, by the time the uh, the autumn of of 1989 was over, this the album was done. Right, it was a, a dead issue. Right, and um, that is certainly not what Capital thought it was buying. Uh, when it uh, when it signed these guys to a, a two album deal for what was then, I think Tim Carr uh, put it somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty million dollars in two thousand five or two thousand six terms. So whatever that works out to today, it's a big deal, right? Uh, money wise. So for that investment, no, uh, they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. Now, in retrospect. You know, with this becoming a successful catalog album, with it over time uh, becoming, uh, you know, one of the iconic albums of its era and, sure. and maybe of all time, then, OK, they did finally get uh, what they thought they were getting. But it took took a long time in the short term um it looked like a really bad decision for capital, and, and they were certainly, by all appearances, ready to wash their hands of the group uh, after Check Your Head came
1: out, had it gone a similar route, which, right. as we know, it, it didn't. Right. Um, I don't want to put you too much on the spot here because I don't know how much— uh research you've been doing, Dan, about the the, the um, continuing legal wrangling about Paul's Boutique, but I was looking at the sample list at some point, and I came across a link to, to a um, news article from Billboard which was put out in the last, definitely within the last six months, if I remember correctly, um, where there are still legal suits around the sampling, which to me is kind of mind-boggling, considering the album came out in 1989.
0: Well, I um- even today, and I, I I have not seen the uh, the story from Billboard that you mentioned, but I think back to uh, an interview that the group did, I think with Wired, and it's been some years ago. It was probably the better part of it, a decade ago, but certainly long, long after uh, Paul's boutique had come out. You know, by this point, it. it has achieved its full reputation, and even in this interview, um, I remember there being questions about, you know, the re-release of Paul's boutique and and what would that look like, and would it be possible because of all the the potential lawsuits that happened. and even in that story, the the answers that uh, that the guys gave were fairly contradictory. I, I paraphrase. But it was something along the line as uh, well. After 10 years, uh, you don't have to worry about lawsuits anymore. And I think Adrock said something defective. Well, at least we hope not. Right. Um, you know, sampling law is, is something that I, I think a lot of us, or I think I speak for myself uh, anyway, uh, I think as with a, a lot of other branches of law, we expect for things to kind of settle down and, and clarify themselves and, you know, that we will reach uh, a, a point where there's enough legal precedent that we can say, yes, this will happen if you sample X, Y, and Z. And, you know, yes, there is a statute of limitations around the, the use of, of of samples. And if an album is X number of years old, then we're we're past the statute. But I think you have only to look at the career of a guy who is uh, from right here uh, in my hometown, Greg Gillis, uh, who performs as Girl Talk and who has done uh, a number of albums of mashups and and a bunch of music, which is very, very sample heavy. Right. And and has really openly invited uh, lawsuits. Uh, And it hasn't happened. And there's been a happened to the the best of my knowledge. But uh, but people have kind of opined about that and you know why is this well how can a guy come out and do this stuff and and have it be so open and blatant and and he hasn't been sued and and i don't know that there's a definite answer about that but part of the answer seems to be that um you know there really has to there has to be a big enough target uh you know to make this worthwhile with that being said you would think that Certainly Paul's Boutique, uh, the Beastie Boys, Capitol Records offer uh, in in this very diminished uh, landscape in terms of how much money you can actually make from making music these days. uh, They seem to be a big enough target that you could imagine that, that lawsuits like the ones you're describing, they might... Perpetuate themselves uh, as long as as there's music, as long as there's pause tea. Um, I'm not up on, uh, as I, I say, that particular lawsuit, so I don't know what the, the dispensation of it is going to look like, but... Um, I think maybe the best way to answer it is that uh, as long as there are lawyers and people who are willing to uh, bring lawsuits and judges that are willing to entertain them, we're probably going to keep asking some variation of this question forevermore. But the flip side of that is that I don't think it is going to inhibit people from continuing to do what they do. And in fact, you could make the case that in a funny way, things are more wide open now, uh, than, than they ever have been that the old line about, well, you could never make an album like Paul's boutique now, uh, because you would be sued, you know, immediately on the release of it and you you couldn't do it except as an art project. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if that is is the case anymore. Uh, if you're a big enough target, perhaps you couldn't do it. But if you're not a big enough target, could you do it and still release and still make money? Uh, right. I'm starting to think the answer to that question is probably yes. Right.
1: I think you could. Right. If you wanted to. There's um, yeah, a couple of things that, that come to mind. And, uh, I'll put up a link on the blog post when this interview goes up to the the um the billboard lawsuit article but just as a quick uh thumbnail sketch here is that the the gist of it is is that these individual musicians and i'm not remembering the name of them um they have used sort of forensic audio technology to go and take apart Paul's Boutique and find a sample that they had not known was there before. I mean, that's going back to our original point about how the layers and layers and layers of of samples that even no one may ever actually have known, all the list, as you say, that never may have existed. That The the whole notion now of sort of saying, well, we have new audio technology that would allow us to sort of take a CD track and separate out the music in a different sort of way, and we can hear a drum beat from some – uh, music made in the 1960s or 70s. It's 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 really uh, like you say. It, it, it's to me kind of a dubious, a legal point.
0: That's a, that's an interesting idea. That as the you know as the technology has improved to the point that you can isolate stuff in a track, which as you point out, uh, to give everyone involved the benefit of a doubt could very well be there um, without uh, necessarily the, the, knowledge even of the people who put the thing together. Uh, but even as the technology has improved, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of wide open state of copyright law at the moment sort of seems to be working in, in the other direction. So right. I, I don't know. It it's a, it's a pretty fascinating subject, uh, certainly one of the, the areas of law which seems to be just evolving on a, a continual basis. And we'll uh, be very interested to see what the, uh, what the result of, of all this is. As I say, uh, the Beasties are well known. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Paul's Boutique is still an album which is commercially available and generates, you would have to assume, a certain amount of uh, annual revenue. Therefore, if you were going to bring a lawsuit, that would be the kind of uh, target that you would probably want to focus on as opposed to someone who's kind of operating more at the, the fringes of um
1: the musical mainstream right the um the question i probably should have asked earlier in the interview but does connect up with samples um and is the point you make at the conclusion of the book about the beasties cultural worldview on this record being based largely on the 70s and and on nostalgia and it's it really is remarkable that it's almost as if in terms of the samples, in many ways, meaning the actual content of the samples or where they came from, it's almost like the 1980s didn't exist to the Beasties.
0: Uh, I think that's a, a an interesting point, and and maybe the the if we could refine it, we might say that um, if you could kind of draw a, a window uh, around. Uh, a, a particular era, uh, and I don't know where you would draw it exactly, but I'll I, I explain what I mean. In that there are there are some samples on the album that come from the early part of the '80s. I think when you say that the '80s um, didn't exist, it, it, it's true in the sense that. Everything that was going on uh, at that moment, which we kind of associated with uh, the 80s musically. And at that point, uh, it's really uh, we're talking about digital recording. We're talking about uh, advances in sequencing. We're talking about uh, Teams like Stock Aitken Waterman, uh, who, you know, in 1989, that's kind of their their heyday as far as these very heavily sequenced and very uh, digital and pristine productions. Um, when you're talking about pop music, uh, as epitomized by that kind of thing, yeah, Paul's boutique had absolutely nothing nothing whatsoever to do uh, with that idea in fact it was very much at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of live instruments even though a lot of them were played via samples um, certainly it's a pretty 70's heavy record in terms right. of the samples used and, and the, the styles of music that we associate with those samples stuff from disco and, right. and the funk records and jazz fusion of the the 70s. So, yeah, I, I, I do think it's fair to say that it's an album that was, um, you know, certainly not of its time in the sense that uh, the things that I think of as kind of representative of, of that time as described uh, really uh, – were the
1: antithesis of, of of stuff that was happening on on this album, right? I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's hits it right on the right on the head. And yeah, the um, the end of the book for the listeners is really, I think, does a great job of kind of crystallizing that point in a more um, explicit way. And uh, that's why I'd urge everyone to to pick up a copy of this book. Um, our traditional final question on new books and popular music and across the New Books Network is about. Uh, asking writers about their current projects or their future writing projects. And you speak a little bit about that, Dan, what you have on the horizon.
0: Um, I will. Um, I'll say two things. Uh, the, the first thing that I'm working on, uh, and you know, let's be honest, as a music writer, they, they won't let you in the union unless you have some kind of musical side project of varying degrees of obscurity of your own. It's just not done. So I'm certainly no exception to that rule. And just finishing up uh, mastering uh, a, an album of the instrumental stuff that for people who maybe like some of the source material on Ball's Boutique, check your head, or like the instrumental Beatty's album, uh, the mix-up, and the kind of '60s and '70s jazz fusion—it—it uh, it, it kind of falls in uh, into that realm. So that's something that I'm hoping to uh, make available through SoundCloud and iTunes and uh, uh, all the the other venues pretty soon. Uh, in terms of uh, writing, uh, you know, next year is going to be the 25th anniversary of Paul's boutique and something that I've thought about is whether there's really anything more to be said, uh, on that subject. And I'm still trying to answer that question, but I'm leaning toward yes. And leaning toward maybe some, um, I don't know how I would describe it at this point. Cause I, I haven't really, reached a conclusion as far as the form it would take, but still feels like there's something uh, left to be said about it on, on the uh, anniversary of this album, you know, with the passing of Yauk with the passing of a guy like Sean Karasov, who was such an important part of, of this particular era And just a, of beastie history. Um, so I haven't decided, like I say, what form that will take, but I'm leaning toward some kind of addendum or uh, addition to this book. And um, uh, I'm off from school now for a month or so, so I, I guess I have to decide pretty soon whether uh, that's something that uh, I'm going to try to pursue. But uh, certainly, as, as you pointed out, with uh, very young twins uh uh, for for which i i commend you being able to you know continue doing this this kind of thing because that was certainly the way in which the the paul's boutique book was written um you know uh kids are are a blessing um they don't necessarily make um writing books or or any kind of projects like this uh easier so um mine are a little older than yours right now uh but uh we'll we'll have to see if if this is something that uh that I can actually see through the fruition of course the beasties are as I read it working on on their own autobiography uh which will be out in a, a year or two um Sounds like they're going to go the, the non-traditional route for that. So I still think there's a place for some maybe more uh, old-fashioned, linear narrative of, uh, about stuff. Well, when so you
1: – yeah. Go
0: ahead. I was going to – go ahead. Well, I I was just going to say one other thing that, that I would point out in, in the uh, effort to leave no stone unturned as far as the uh, shilling – of uh, my own work. Uh, any, anyone who reads the, the Paul's Boutique book and wants to read a little bit more about the Beasties and, and uh, a couple of their projects, uh, one of which came uh, to fruition and another which didn't, uh, there, there is a Beasties chapter in a book that I wrote after this called The Greatest Music. Never Sold, which is about famous unreleased albums. So there is a chapter that talks about the uh, the White House album, which was allegedly going to be Death Jam's answer to Paul's Boutique, and then the uh, Country Mike album, which came along some years later and was the, the Beastie's country record. So uh, Beastie fans who uh, are, are interested in those stories, uh, they are included in that, in that book. Plus, there's also one of my favorite things in it, a story that Matt Dyke tells about his work on uh, a pretty famous unreleased album by Brian Wilson hmm. uh, called Sweet Insanity. Uh, and uh, the, the title of, uh, of the album, I think, if, if you read the, the anecdote about it, the title, not not
1: accidental um, Absolutely. In, in any sense. Well... Um- if people want to catch up with you online, what's the best ways to contact you, Dan?
0: Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think the the best way would just be to contact me directly um, via Gmail, and it's just danleroy at gmail dot com. Uh, still working on getting a SoundCloud presence, and uh, you know the various other forms of social media which I try to stay away from uh, with high school students, because if you have that presence, then you have to see what your students are doing. And I'd like to live a long and uh, fairly healthy and sane life. And uh, I think if I knew what was going on uh, uh, with my students in the realm of social media, I'd feel pretty sure that might shorten my expected lifespan uh, by, by a substantial amount. So I'm still kind of finding my way through the world of Twitter and Tumblr and all of that. But uh, the best way is probably, like I say, the, the most direct way. I encourage uh, all correspondents, and uh, I'm, I'm not the fastest correspondent, but uh, certainly – welcome
1: hearing from readers or those who are curious well listen I, dan i'm really grateful you came on and i want to uh give my one last plug here which is completely heartfelt and honest Again, I tell people listening is that I don't pick out books that I don't like. Um, it's books that I like and I recommend for people. Um, and uh, if you haven't started reading the 33 and a Third series, uh, I really would recommend people that they start because they are quite addictive. And the Paul's Boutique book is as good as any um, to start with because it really, I think, does what I like to see in a, in a book like this, which is it tells the story of how the album is made and then does a um, tremendously detailed um set of uh sketches about each song about the uh content the lyrics and we didn't even get into that but um i'm just very grateful you came on dan and uh if you do write another book on paul's boutique the maybe the uh the expanded edition with bonus tracks or however the the, (laughs) the record industry would do it today we would love to have you back well, Greg, I want to thank you for,
0: for all your great and thoughtful questions and, and certainly for the, the kind words about the book and for having me uh, on the uh, the podcast. And I would be remiss if um, if I didn't uh, offer a, a plug, if I may, for a couple of other books in the series, sure. which certainly encourage um people to uh read this one of course I I would do that but a uh, you know a couple of other great ones which happen to be written by friends of mine but uh even if they weren't friends of mine I I would say nice things about their books and one of them is uh The Ferris's book about Slayer's Rain and Blood which uh as far as books in the series that go the journalistic route uh, I I think it's it's the best um and certainly there's some amount of slayer and uh, and Beastie Boy's kind of synchronicity. Absolutely. So one one might lead to the other. And another book, it's one of my favorites in the series, uh, is the book on Octung Baby by uh my very dear friend Stephen Katanzry, which takes a completely different tack. It is not journalistic, it's much more uh an exploration of the spirituality of that record and uh I highly recommend both of them. So if you're, if you're at the, uh, the shop and you can get
1: an armful of books, those are, uh, there's a couple that I would certainly recommend unreservedly. Amen. And, uh, available on Amazon. And I understand there are audio versions of the books coming.
0: That is true. I think there's actually one of Paul's boutique, uh, already, uh, and, um, I haven't actually sat down to listen to it, only because it seems like I don't know. It seems like it would be a weird uh, experience. I certainly uh, am glad that there is one that exists. I just haven't uh, sat down with it, and 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 I don't know what that would be like. But uh, I guess at some point I'll I'll give in and listen. But uh, that that's a good point. They are available, I think, through Audible, and if you're an audiobook fan. Uh, that would certainly be a nice way to go. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Pleasure is all mine. And uh, best of luck with this series as it continues and with your Van Halen book. I, I can't wait
1: to read it. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with author Dan Leroy about his book, Paul's Boutique, which was published by Continuum Press in 2009. Thanks for listening and please join me again next time for another episode of New Books and Pop Music. In the meantime, I'd be grateful if you subscribe via iTunes so you would not miss another upcoming episode.